players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Pernicious Deed, Green Sun Zenith, Fire Blast, and many others battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy and the search for eternal, for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by The Minds Behind, Bosch and Raw on YouTube, The Raven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by ScrollRack.app and Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and more at ToAMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Old Decks, New Tech. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Koval from Bosch and Roll. And I am Brent Cook of the Epic Storm. All right, how's everyone feeling tonight? Delightful, Phil. Happy to be here. How are you, Brian? Uh, I am here and ready to do this. I gave a long explanation in the pre-show about how I'm actually feeling, and if you want to hear that, go check it out. But if you don't, I'm smiling. I don't know how we tricked, or how I was tricked, into listening to Phil talk about Moonstompy for an episode, so uh, here it goes. Yeah, I'm just planning on talking about, like, Karn while rubbing my nipples. Um, like, you all are not getting the video side of this, but, like, just, just know that it's happening. Any new patrons after this episode will get a picture of Phil's nipples. <laughs> uh, Phil promises. Speaking of which, since our last episode, I'd like to shout out Derek, Kyle, and Eric for joining as Patreon subscribers, as well as our new sponsor, Scroll Rack who we'll hear more about later in this episode. All right. Um, so here's kind of the, the, the thesis for tonight. Tonight we're going to be examining some popular decks that have undergone some changes over time, or maybe are undergoing some changes right now. So first we're going to take a look at Moon Stompy, slash Red Prison, however you want to view that deck. Then we're going to take a look at Elves, specifically the new versions featuring Fiend Artisan. And then with whatever time we have left, maybe we'll... Uh, talk about some upcoming changes to Legacy Goblins. Back in my day, it was called Dragon Stompy, and we liked it. Nobody liked it when it was Dragon Stompy, and then it became Werewolf Stompy, and then it got actual good cards, which we're here to talk about today. All right, so let's very briefly talk about some of the history of this deck. Um, let's maybe go back three-ish years. Uh, Moon Stompy, Red Prison, whatever you want to think of it as, was... I would say a fringe playable legacy deck. And I say that as someone who was heavily invested in this deck, like it, it wasn't great. It was very good at beating the things that it was good at beating and very bad against a lot of other stuff. It had a really weird matchup profile. And it was one of those decks that was like great for the right weekend, but maybe not a tier one legacy deck most of the time. Uh, the golden era of Moon Stompy was when Deathrite Shaman was at its the height of its powers. And lands was the solution to Deathrite Shaman. So the the tippy top of the metagame was like Grixis Delver versus lands. And Moon Stompy just smearing the Delver deck with its Chalice of the Voids and Blood Moons and lands with its Blood Moons. And I mean, this is also where I got hooked on Blue White, playing a ton of basic lands in my deck because those were good against the two Wasteland decks and the Blood Moon deck, which were the top three of the format. Like that's sort of where Moon Stompy really just broke out of like LOL Dragon Stompy into, oh, this is a real thing. Yeah, there used to be this time where you would like resolve a Chalice of the Void versus Delver, and they had four fucking cards left in their deck. Like they had four Charmagoyfs, and like that was it. That was a world we used to live in. And I experienced like, that. Lol, lol, Brazen Borrower. I experienced that world uh, just. Two weekends ago, I 5-0'd with Lazab Stifleknot on the channel, and I had a local legacy event coming up, and I was like, I think this deck actually has legs, and it's fun. It'll make good Twitter content. And round one, I was on the draw against 8-cast, and he was just like, Chalice of the Void, go. 
And I looked at my hand of just ponder, thoughtsies, stifle, dreadnought, land, land, land. It's like, all right, cool. I remember this. I'll concede. But what happened since then, Phil? The deck took a real fucking beating from fire design. In the Oko Uro era, say that 10 times fast, that's a mouthful, the deck was basically unplayable. This deck was trying to be this Chalice of the Void deck in a time where, like, Pyroblasts and Red Elemental Blasts were incredibly important to taking out these threats, and Oko just said, lol, I don't care, to all of the Trinospheres, Chalice of the Voids, and other artifacts that these decks were playing. And the deck just fell out of the metagame. It was embarrassing trying to play that deck. Like, it was incredibly frustrating. It was absolutely one of those, like, yeet this deck into the trash, like, buy a new Legacy deck moments for that deck. It was absolutely brutal great great times great times huge fan yeah no 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 Karns floating around to shut off all those lovely artifacts over there and i miss the hell out of oko i gotta say that's not we're not on that side of the conversation tonight yeah that was a golden era from someone who lost a lot of games to turn one chalice of the void in my life being a delver fan a ponder fan all those things that i like doing in magic before we just had prismatic ending and brazen borrower and easy laughable answers to to shrug off potent hate pieces in game one and oko was just the crowning gem of control bullshit that stopped people from stopping me and let me do what i want to do i am sorry that oko's gone but also legacy's great and moonstompy's back so let's continue with this walk down memory lane what did what were people doing to combat the okos back in that time so you had this philosophy shift so versus the blue decks, the Moon Zombie decks used to be like, I am putting Chalice to stop your Brainstorms, your Ponders, and your removal spells. You might have a couple of ways to get out of it, but this is going to buy me time to close the game. And instead, these decks started boarding out all of the Chalices versus the blue decks so that they could play four to six Blast Effects out of the sideboard. Like, that's just how important it was to answer those two cards. And I think that period of like growth and perspective change really allowed for some of the things that followed later when some new cards got printed that allowed the deck to shift in other directions yeah the the squeeze back in the day of like knowing what how to lead in a matchup like the postures that the deck was able to take like we're going to get into here like the prison side of the transfer blood moon stuff and then just like the eight rabble masters and always have a horrifying threat early in the game in 2019 in eternal weekend paris my round one opponent mauled to five and played chrome mox exiling rabble master ancient tomb blood moon passed the turn with one card in hand and i drew for my turn played basic island arkham's astrolabe passed the turn with seven cards in hand and completely immune to Blood Moon because of Astrolabe and a single basic. And if he had just played the Rabble Master, pitched the Blood Moon, I was probably dead. So the the way that these decks have gone, they they've just kind of figured that out. I think if that same opening hand was presented in 2020, even just a year later, the Rabble Master would have been coming in instead of the Blood Moon. Yeah, um, I was planning to talk about this later, but like, let's do this where it's natural. I think a lot of times these Red Prison decks get called like brainless decks, no skill decks, you know, something of that general nature. But what's actually happening is like the hyper compression of all of your decisions come in with your mulliganing and your sequences for about the first two turns of the game. So when you're playing like a blue deck, you have these decisions like ponder and brainstorm and stuff that you make over time to sculpt your game plan. Whereas with a deck like Red Prison, like you look at your opening hand, you mentally plot out the first four turns of the game and you go like, okay, what does this beat? What does this lose to? What am I willing to commit to? Are there lines that I can change later on or do I have to go all in on something now? The gameplay is just hyper compressed into these first couple of turns in a way that's still interesting, but what might look like, haha, blood moon, you lose to an outsider might actually have been like 10 decisions that were made for pathing four turns. But a few of those turns were just unnecessary. Phil, I don't know if that's even exclusive to prison. I've talked about it a little bit with uh, some Ant videos that I've recorded, and I promise I'm not just saying this to bash Ant decks, but I don't think Preordain is really a card that has aged well in the era of the London Mulligan. I think time and mana are two of the most valuable things in Legacy and CEDH, fun fact, 
but when you can just leverage the London Mulligan to fix your hand, you don't want to spend your first turn casting Preordain while your opponent's casting uh, a Dragon's Rage Channeler. Like, the difference in power is so different, and I think you're better off just getting that card quality using something that costs free rather than putting that card value in your deck and spending time and mana to do it, if that makes sense. And it's sort of the same philosophy that Red Prison's using here. Yeah, I have said many times that I think control decks get this rep as being difficult among newer players who just see how long the game takes and how many decisions you make. But really, you're just making the same decision over again, which is, does this kill me? If yes, how do I answer it? And you just make that binary decision of, does this kill me? Better answer it until either they run out of threats or you run out of answers and somebody loses the game. And compare that to, like Phil was saying with Red Prison, where like, I can turn two Blood Moon off this seven, or maybe I can turn one Blood Moon off this, off a six, or maybe this isn't a Blood Moon matchup, and I need to mulligan this turn one Blood Moon hand until I can find a turn one Rabble Master. There's a lot of decisions that go into the pregame actions in a deck like this. And I had this really interesting situation come up on my channel this week where I played against Red Prison, and in game one, they kept seven, and they were just like, Basic Mountain Go, Basic Mountain Go, Basic Mountain Blood Moon on their first three turns. And I was like, that was not a good seven. And then in game two, they also kept seven. I had this like weird level moment of, should I be terrified? Because this deck frequently wants to go to five or six to find the perfect hand. And when they keep seven, you're dead. Should I mulligan for Force of Will, expecting an explosive turn one? Or is this just a player who thinks keeping seven is the right play? And... I ended up keeping a hand without good interaction because I thought they were a player who just keeps seven and I ended up getting stomped. And then they kept seven in game three as well. and That didn't do anything. So it was just this kind of there. there is like it, it's like Tron in modern or dredge or oops all spells or just there are hands like I'm a lands and spells kind of homie like seven cards island ponder. Let's go. Uh, I don't need a specific plan because my decks don't require one, but a deck like moon stompy there's a lot going on before the the actual we've kept start making land drops game begins i hope you got actual stomped with the bone crusher giant because that card is one of the few cards that rules out of that deck that is a sweet card big fan okay have you ever cast a bone crusher giant phil it's awesome i have i mean it's the card that i'll play in the deck sometimes but i'm never like fuck yeah bone crusher giant is in my opening hand like suck it nerd when i had to test for the arena pt (laughs) i tested a lot with that card and it was just really good yeah i have definitely in my life had bone crusher giant on the play against literally any creature deck and i am just like suck it nerd (laughs) kill your one drop put a four three in front of your two drop game is over good luck goodbye take four yeah, we didn't even need Chalice of the Void, Phil. Come on. All right. So um, let's talk about this archetype, or maybe even calling that is it like an archetype is really not accurate. In my mind, this deck has forked into two completely different decks. There is a red prison deck that is wanting to play like planeswalkers and ensnaring bridges and really drag the game on. And this is a deck of like, medium competitiveness it's okay but it's very slow and then there is this low to the ground goblin rabble master legion war boss den of the bugbear like fury deckless that has been running around that has been picking up more and more steam and when we really say moon stompy like that's really what we mean it's like red prison and moon stompy are now two different decks and one of them is really fucking good and one of them's playable I definitely agree with the assessment that there are two different branches on this family tree now. From the perspective of per- someone who plays against the deck a lot more than I actually play it, every time my opponent is like Chrome Mox Ancient Tomb, I'm like, please cast Blood Moon or please cast Trinisphere. I don't want the Rabble Master. I don't want the Fable of the Mirror Breaker. I, if they're coming at me at my life total, I am much more worried about that situation. Though I imagine Bryant might feel differently. I'm thrilled to see a turn one fable of the mirror breaker through the moon. <laughs> you know, you could cast a blood moon. I'd be happy with that. As long as it's not a transfer or chalice. Trying to win the game. Well, air quotes, win the game with lock piece. I think that's gotten really hard in legacy in the past five or maybe even 10 years at this point. Like removal has just gotten better and better and more flexible. 
you know, at first we got things like Abrupt Decay and then the Brazen Borrowers, the Teferis, the Prismatic Endings. There are so many main deckable cards that answer these lock pieces, so it's not just game over anymore. Like, it used to be like, oh, I dropped an Ensnaring Bridge versus Delver. I've won the game. It's going to take me 20 turns, but, like, I've won this game. I think you're also not mentioning Force of Negation. Similar for Storm Combo, but the number of turn one effects that these blue decks have went from two to six to even possibly seven. And you used to play the same game that Storm did, which is you're 40% to have the Force. Here's a turn one chalice. And now that odd is 50 to 65%, depending on the bill, the build. I don't know. Like, it's kind of tough on top of that. Force of Vigor is also a card, so locking them out long-term can be pretty difficult. I mean, you, you have to be facing a deck that has Force of Vigor in it, but you still have to lock those decks out if you're on the I'm-going-to-prison-you plan. Even if you only have, like, two outs, just think of how many cards Blue Red Delver looks at in a game. If they have two Brazen Borrowers, like, you're not going to hide behind that lock piece forever. They will find it. You will die in one hit from that Merktide region once that bridge is bounced. And so this shift towards, like, just kill your opponent, idiot, has been really good. And I think part of that is because some of the newer cards, like Fable of the Mirror Breaker that you already mentioned, have made that, like, CMC3 or less slot better. And there's re- less reliance on things like Karn the Great Creator and Chandra Torch of Defiance than there used to be. You love to hear it. Yeah, Fable, I want to talk about Fable for a minute here. That is a spicy magic card. If you haven't had opportunity to cast it, it's currently legal in all formats. Uh, It is still standard legal. It's a pioneer staple. It's a modern staple. It's getting played in the, the strategies you'd expect in Legacy. Even Goblins has adopted Fable the Mirror Breaker. Uh, I see Eli out there brewing up Goblin stuff, and he he 5-0'd with a nearly Goblinless Goblin deck (laughs) last week. That was pretty funny. But Fable the Mirror Breaker, it is a threat. It's a 3-mana threat. It creates a 2-2 Goblin that when it attacks makes a treasure. That Goblin threatens to just... It threatens the Karn. It threatens the Chandra. It threatens whatever because of the treasures it accrues over time. And chapter two, which I think is the real hero chapter, of you may discard up to two cards and then draw that many cards. It gives real card selection to a mono red stompy deck. That's messed up. Like a lot of the time when you're in those, they stuck the turn one Trinisphere. Just let me get to my third land drop without doing anything too messed up. We'll we'll get there and start playing ugly magic together. The, your only hope is that their hand is just like, a mountain, another Trinisphere, and something else that doesn't hurt you. And Fable the Mirror Breaker just gets them out of Trinisphere, hurts you, and selects their cards to keep pushing their game plan forward. And the the like Kiki Jiki at the end is kind of flavor text, which is completely cracked if it gets online. But that chapter two, I think, is really the the hero that decks like this needed. I don't know. I I kind of think I disagree with you. All right, let's hear it. So. I agree with you in the context of, like, Painter, I think, where, like, the discard and the draw is super valuable for, like, the same reasons that you mentioned, and in addition, it's also really good with, like, the welders and engineers that are there. Um, A lot of times, like, the Red Prison deck has emptied its hand, like, you've kind of gone all in already, like, by the time the Chapter 2 actually happens, so I find this more valuable for the control matchups, where, like, this represents two bodies. And God forbid the Fable of the Mirror Breaker token from stage three actually ever gets active and starts representing like copying Furies or copying a Goblin Rabble Master to just get in there with more bodies. I found in the like Moon Stompy specifically, the middle mode, while theoretically good, has not actually done as much as I expected it to do in games because like my cards are already in play. All right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You have more reps with this uh, behind the wheel than I do, but playing against it. Every time that chapter two ticks up as the control deck, I'm like, Ugh, here it goes. They're about to break out of this awkward top deck stalemate because they can select cards and I can't because there's a chalice in play. And maybe that's just the way that I'm looking at the matchup from the other side. But definitely chapter two is is my largest concern. I'm in agreement with Brian here, Phil. I'm not saying that you're wrong. 
But one of the things that Moonstompy doesn't have is card selection. So when you're playing Moonstompy, we talked about leveraging the London Mulligan and using that to your advantage. So you keep this hand, you get to do your turn one play. On turn two, you might want to cast a secondary or even a tertiary plan like Fable the Mirror Breaker. You don't have any control after that. So if you draw running lands or maybe secondary lock pieces like an extra Blood Moon, you have no way of converting those to live cards. And I think that's really where Fable the Mirror Breaker shines. I'm open to being wrong, but from an outside perspective, that's where that card's value really comes from to me. Yes, I'm not I'm not disagreeing. It does that in the times where it does that. It's nuts, but I'm more often finding that Fable of the Mirror Breaker is like the third or fourth card that I want to play out a lot of times. Because a lot of times your sequencing goes like lock piece, heavy threat, heavy threat, and then Fable ends up being cleanup duty. In the games where you play it out that way, you're pretty low on cards, especially if you've gotten like wastelanded or have had to trade resources in some other way. It's like the games that are awkward and you get stuck or you draw too much redundancy in the wrong way that it's good. Yeah. It, certainly if you have the option of like chalice into rabble master rabble master fable you might not even cast it when the game is over it, like just thinking of the the red versus blue play pattern of like a chalice resolves force your rabble master force your chandra now we're both on just ugly top deck mode uh, if you can select and i can't uh, i guess the way it actually maps out in play I just see Fable doing more because uh, I am always on the blue side and it's always the third thing they cast and it's always the one that resolves and it's always chapter two that breaks open that tenuous stalemate of who can top deck out of this better. So I am not sitting in the driver's seat where I'm actually just running over decks that don't have six forces in them. I am the deck with six forces. So it would make sense how our experiences would not line up in that way did anyone else just hear brian say i am the one who knocks because that's all i heard there say my name let's be clear i'm still singing the praises of this card like this card's fucking good like this card has made it so that you don't have to play karn or chandra for sources of card advantage that lets you get lower on the curve and it makes things like den of the bugbear that previously in my opinion were like unplayable garbage into a good card because if you're wanting to play with CMC4 or greater cards, having an ETB tapped land is a disaster. That is not acceptable. And I just ran into so many mana base problems when I was playing like Karn Chandra versions of this deck that had that land. And when your curve stops at three, not counting Fury here, that's a free card that you can occasionally hard cast, like Force of Will. Not counting Fury, like you just can go Den, Soul Land, never play a land again in a lot of games and be totally fine. Whereas that wasn't true in older builds. Yeah, the awkward tension of using City of Traders for, to play your turn one play, and then you can't play another land until your four drop is ready to come out. And if that gets forced, then you have to find another land to get back up to three. Uh, that was a tension that I could feel from the other side and exploit. And yeah, it's really cool that the deck can just stop at that point. Yeah, and because you can just stop on two lands and be comfortable, you are much better at presenting pressure in the early game and just playing like threat, 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 or like lock piece, threat, threat, threat. Um, it just ends up feeling much more consistent, and we're seeing that consistency in the results of things like legacy challenges. Ultimately, I like this deck. I feel like it has great tools. I feel like it has a decent matchup versus Blue Red Delver. You've got Ley Lines. You've got a bunch of Blasts. You've got Unlicensed Hearse to fight against the stuff that they have there. But that said, I do think that this deck can really struggle versus Wastelands in that matchup, or just more generally because you aren't running nearly as many mountains as you might think a monocolored deck would in Legacy, and you can sometimes get trapped under your own Trinisphere. So, like, you lead on a Trinisphere on the play off a Soul Land and a Spirit Guide or something, your opponent wastelands you, you're stuck under your own Trinisphere and just, like, sitting dead in the water. That sort of thing can happen, but I've been pretty happy with the matchup spread. Do unto others, Phil. You want to lock people out of the game? How's it feel? I mean, it still feels like I got a 4-1 in an hour with a very good deck, so, like, it's okay. Fair enough. Do you try to grind it out, or are you, are you just like, okay, we're behind enough, let's go to the next game? Are you on, like, the dedicated speedrun strat? No, I'm usually making content when I play this deck. 
it used to be like when I was grinding with this deck, like I, I would get a feel for whether or not I'm like north of 90% to lose. Then I'd be like, yeah, okay, like we, we can pack it up. Like, all right, arrows in play. Let's let's go to the next one. Yes, that just concede match there. Like yep. we, we can stop after game one. <laughs> Phil, have you ever considered combining the two decks, the Red Prison and Moonstompy? Because you could have Fable the Mirror Breaker discarding additional copies of Yokel Hops, and you wouldn't have to worry about the six mana sorcery being stuck in your hand. First of all, you have to keep the six mana sorcery in your hand if you want to cast it later. That's the rule. If you want to scream Yokel Hops into your microphone very loudly and get excited, you have to keep the questionable card in your hand for a while. Um, in all seriousness, though, like, that goblin token that attacks and just makes treasures is really sweet at powering out your planeswalkers ahead of curve. Like, that's very reasonable. And I think I had that in my last Yoko Hops video. I don't know. It all it all blurs together. That said, if you're looking to beat this deck after listening to me kind of gush about it for a little while, like, play Doomsday. Just, like, play something that can just ignore the lock pieces that I'm playing. Like you're not super bad against Blood Moon. You're pretty. You're like your primary win conditions don't get answered by Chalice. You can outweigh a Trinosphere, and a lot of times you can just race the creatures that I'm doing. I've had a lot of trouble with the Doomsday matchup, and I've had a lot of trouble with the Dark Depths matchup. You don't answer a Merit Lodge, and you think Blood Moon is gonna be good against the Merit Lodge deck, and you're fucking wrong. They play a Dark Depths with no counters on it. They will sage you or force a Vigor your moon, and then you've lost the game very quickly. Yeah, I, I've watched I watched a match at a local event le- recently where it was Moonstompy versus Green-White Depths, and it was kind of a brew with some weird choices in the Green-White Depths deck, but game one, the, or the player clearly didn't understand how this worked, and there was literally a Katsali Pride Mage in play, and they were like, Blood Moon. And the opponent's like, okay. Dark Depths go. Then uh, game two, it was a turn one Blood Moon, turn one Dark Depths, Force of Vigor you. And yeah, that Merit Lage is is one of the solutions to this situation. Awkwardly enough, because Lands was one of the decks that Moon Stompy existed to farm in the olden days. That rule did change at some point. The Dark Depths used to arrive with the 10 counters still on it, but then there was a rule change somewhere along the line here that it just wipes all of the things about the land that would come into play and it arrives with no counters now yeah so if you're wondering why you randomly see like dead gons in the sideboard of these decks it is to pretend to be okay versus dark depths but it's it's a pretend yeah even like uh having ensnaring bridge to back it up force of vigor kills two things <laughs> hit the moon and the bridge and you're dead it's rough out there force of vigor rules though love that card all right this podcast episode has been sponsored by Scroll Rack. Not the magic card, but a bot. Scroll Rack is a decklist recommendation bot that pulls lists from pre-existing CEDH, decklist database, and budget brew websites. Kyle Ashmore made this as a tool for his local game store and community, as he wanted to make it easier for his friends to build EDH and CEDH decks without having to scour databases. Scroll Rack asks its users what budget they have in mind, an archetype, and color scheme they'd like to use, and in return, they get a list of decks to choose from. Coming soon, Scroll Rack will be supporting competitive Popper EDH, will have a refined archetype and color selection system as well, so consider checking out Scroll Rack. I already have. I was trying to see if I could get my own CDH to deck to pop up, and it happened. I put in Grixis, I put in Combo, I put in Competitive, Non-Budget, and there it was. Definitely recommend it. Sounds like great stuff. That's scrollrack.app. All right, let's talk about something near and dear to my heart, which is Elves, another deck that has a lot of new tech over the last couple of years emerging very quickly, mostly in the hands of Hello Newton, who broke all the rules about Elves and is getting handsomely rewarded for it with challenge wins. P- he won a PTQ or a Mox, right? Like he, he did extremely well with this build of Elves. His build of elves won one of the Eternal Weekend events last year. He basically rejected the idea that anything was really sacred about the elves deck. In our minds, or at least my mind, I've been around long enough. Elves is Glimpse of Nature, Heritage Druid, Nettle Sentinel, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. Just get those things in play together and draw your deck and win somehow. I was here for uh, the Predator Dragon era of elves the banefire era of elves the mirror entity era of elves 
I've been around all of it. When Craterhoof Behemoth was printed, Natural Order became the cleanest kill. I was there through all of it, but also there through all of it was Heritage Druid, Nettle Sentinel, and Glimpse of Nature. And Newton, over the last couple of years, we're going to kind of speed through the the big changes that are a little older and get to these newer ones. But uh, he added Elvish Reclaimer, which gives you like a Knight of the Reliquary Maverick-esque game plan and also just a solid body. Just 3-4 body for one is big enough. The 1-2, even without the three lands in the graveyard, is enough to survive Plague Engineer, which I believe was one of the catalysts for starting to explore different ways to build elves. And Elvish Reclaimer gives you Gaia's Cradle way more often because you can always tutor it up. Plus you get a main deck Bajuka Bog and sideboard options on stuff like Caracas or Wasteland or I've even seen Lair of the Hydra in these decks. You just get to become this maverick toolbox deck within the elf combo shell. And to make room for the uh, Elvish Reclaimer and and Endurance. He also just packed the deck full of Endurances. Uh, just constantly beating up on graveyards while presenting three four bodies is a really good recipe to defeat El or defeat uh delver it just leaves you with needing to solve the murktide regent problem but if you control the graveyard enough that's not a problem and to make room for all these cards he cut nettle sentinel he cut quarian ranger and slimmed down on heritage druid like those are the core pieces in our brains of what elves is and he's just like, no, we don't need those. Get them out. And made room for these powerful cards. Uh, then to evolve to defeat Murktide Regent, he's like, all right, let's just play removal. And we've seen Swords the Plowshares out of Elves. Then we saw Snuff Out and Murderous Cut. Moving, keeping it black. Elves is a core Golgari deck. It can splash into white for various reasons, but keeping the removal in the black wedge makes the mana a little easier so we saw snuff out and murderous cut for a while and then most recently he discovered that once upon a time is already a card the deck is playing and you can once upon a time for a removal spell if you play shriek maw so shriek maw just lorwyn limited terror shriek maw is back in legacy as the answer to murktide regent that also synergizes gives you a mana off cradle you can find it off once upon a time just really smart discovery there and the big thing that we want to dig into today, just this week, Newton tried a Fiend Artisan in the deck, and let's read that one, because I'm not sure that all of our listeners are going to have that one just in their memory, ready to go. Uh, this card is from Ikoria, Lair of Behemoths. It is a blue or green-black, green-black hybrid, so it's a two-drop that costs green-black, green-black. It's a creature nightmare. Fiend Artisan gets plus one, plus one for each creature in your graveyard. It starts as a 1-1, one, one, and then it has X, green-black hybrid, tap, sacrifice another creature, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Activate this only as a sorcery. So this is a creature that could be huge. It gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. It is cheap to Zenith for... It's green for Allosaurus Shepherd, so it's uncounterable. And once it's in play and you untap with it, it's a just green sun zenith machine. Just tutoring up whatever so you need. So quick note there. It's not a green sun machine. It is a creature tutor machine. Right, right. It does not have that um, green creature clause, meaning you can fetch things like Opposition Agent. Yes, it, and or the aforementioned Shriek Maw. I like, honestly it, didn't know that. I guess though. it's Court of Calling. I don't... I could have been gotten by an opposition agent. I wouldn't have known that unless I found out the hard way. So I appreciate you. Well, it's activated as a sorcery, so they can't really get you too hard. You'll see it coming. But but yes, you can get the opposition agent, the Shriek Maw. And those are both cards that are in the Elves deck shell now, at least on the radar of Elves players. And Newton liked this Fiend Artisan so much that he tried it as a four of in a recent challenge. And to make room for four Fiend Artisans, he cut the last remaining sacred piece of the deck, which was Glimpse of Nature. And now this is barely recognizable as Elves, other than it still has Wirewood Symbiote and Elvish Visionary in it to draw cards. And Allosaurus Shepherd is technically an Elf, but it's mostly there to make green cards uncounterable. And the Pump All Your Elves mode is the weakest it's been since we've seen this card, but the uncounterable mode is the strongest it's been. 
And it's just like a really exciting development. I'm sure it needs to work out some kinks, but uh, Newton is out here changing the world of elves from things that we thought were laws. Phil, you have played this deck. What do you think about it? Um, so the first thing I want to say is that if you are used to Nettle Sentinel elves, like the elves of Legacy Past, this is an entirely different animal. It requires a different skill set, so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, Hello Newton does does stream and has some Patreon content as well for written stuff. Um, if you look at this and you're like, I don't get it, and you need to like see it in action, like please consider checking out his stuff. It's very good. Um, I've done a stream with him in the past, and it was very enlightening. Seeing the list for the first time, it reminded me a little bit of the Chaos Elves from like the 2013 era, if you're familiar with that, that ran a bunch of big creatures like um, Renzrung Packmaster, I believe it's called. Yes. It reminds me a little bit of that. Obviously, it's a different beast, but the strategy is similar in my head. I saw someone make the joke that made that comparison, but in the inverse, because Chaos Elves was called Chaos Elves because there was no order as a natural order, and the opposite of order is chaos. And that deck reduced its exposure to blue decks, primarily miracles, by removing the two-for-one if it gets countered for a mana spell and just leaning into Cavern of Souls and creatures that generate value while they're in play. Newton has done the opposite, where he's kind of like, let's just prioritize natural order being completely bonkers and uncounterable as often as possible. I saw the joke on Twitter was we're going to call this order elves as the opposition to chaos elves because it's doing the exact opposite thing. Weirdly enough, it's kind of getting there in a similar way, which is make every individual card better. And then you don't need to rely on these big synergy engines with all the moving pieces. Yeah. And I think more generally, like Newton in his own like internal documentation, like refers to it as like cradle control. That's what it is in his mind. Like, it's about the cradle. It's about dragging the game on and, like, finding your spots to win later. Yes. Uh, the, it was the early build he was calling oops all cradles, as in you just always have cradles. Then it became cradle control over time as it went from, like, wait, Elvish Reclaimer gives us cradle all the time. We can combo so fast into, wait, we have cradle all the time. And this is a giant mana engine that we can assert our dominance over a game state with. All right. So now I'll actually go back to the question you asked me, which is like, what do I think of the deck? I, I played a league with it um, two days ago. Um, so I want to say I played one of the earliest 4X Fiend Artisan builds. It still had Glimpse of Nature in it. Surprise, surprise, Glimpse of Nature is not great when you add a bunch of two drops to your deck. Um, so I, like, I felt Glimpse alongside Fiend Artisan was really bad. And lo and behold, like, by the time I was done recording, like, I looked on Discord, I looked on Twitter, and it was like, oh, you all figured this out already. Like, you've already dropped this. It's weird to say, but I kind of feel like Glimpse of Nature does the same thing Fiend Artisan does, in that it's kind of like a mana sink slash source of card advantage. Like, a lot of times the Reclaimer Elves isn't fully comboing off with Glimpse, it's just treating it as a way to draw a couple of cards and progress the game. And that's what Fiend Artisan is doing. Like, it is a way to progress your game. It's a way to, like, find your Elvish Visionary or your Wirewood and get that combo going or something like that. So it kind of takes the spots Glimpse has. And it does it in a way that is less reliant on factors that aren't always in your control. Like, Fiend Artisan, you can always tap green green and put it on the stack. And it might be a 1-1, it might be a 6-6, you might have 2 mana, you might have 10 mana. But this thing, you can always draw it and cast it. Glimpse of Nature, you want to cast it when you have, obviously, at least one creature in your hand, ideally two or three to really get any value. I've played enough elves in my time to know all about the, like, glimpse, cast creature, 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 draw two lands and another glimpse, and the glimpse is over. Or the, like, they survived the first wave, I'm rebuilding, I'm doing this, that, I just need like a threat to keep the thing going, and I topped a glimpse into my empty hand, or a hand with two lands in it. The The floor is much higher on Fiend Artisan, but I think the ceiling is much lower. Obviously, winning the game on turn two is not something Fiend Artisan is capable of, but Glimpse of Nature is. But if you're playing towards like the aggregate, what a game is going to look like when they actually interact with you, Fiend Artisan makes a whole lot of sense. I'm going to just say the obvious here. Fiend Artisan is not an elf. Yeah, yeah I know. Yep. Wild, right? It's a nightmare. 
and the elf count is a little low in this deck for my liking, but I'm like very much on the conservative side of numbers a lot of times when it comes to things like mana bases. I was finding that it was a little hard to get lethal Allosaurus Shepherd activations in a single turn. It was a little hard to get three elves for Heritage Druid, and sometimes it was hard to like want to untap one of my elves because I had like one elf and a wirewood, and so I didn't have that like second elf to really start chaining things together in the way that I I wanted. Um, and I wasn't the biggest fan of that. Um, I I found it awkward. I also found it awkward when the deck was at like middling amounts of mana. Your your fiend artisan can be your your kill condition, right? Like you can just activate that for uh, what X is nine. Fish out your crater hoof, you win. Or like sometimes if you have a lot of mana in a few turns, you can start getting your wirewood elvish visionary uh, chains online. But when you're sitting at like five mana or or something like that, I often found it was a little bit awkward. Like, you can trade away one of your creatures for a Grist or something like that, and, like, that can be fine. Um, But sometimes you're not really making the best use of the Fiend Artisan mana, and, like, you're better off casting some of the spells from your hand. And if that's the case, like, why is the Fiend Artisan there? Um, I, I felt it trip over itself a little bit, but part of that might be my limited experience, and part of that might be, like, the, the exact version that I played being a little misbuilt with still having glimpses in it. In the situations where you'd rather spend your mana doing something other than Fiend Artisan, was Fiend Artisan just like a 3-3, a 4-4? Like, you could no, just... it was a 1-1. One, one. Oh, wow, that's disappointing. <laughs> I can see that being awkward. That brings me to my next point. Fiend Artisan, in theory, I think is really cool versus these red removal decks and these uh, like black decks with Plague Engineer. But I played against Death and Taxes twice. And they were just exiling my shit. I had zero creatures in my graveyard, and Fiend Artisan was a 1-1. And it was like a 1-1 that was mana-intensive versus the Wasteland Rashadenport deck that was trying to, like, ruin my fucking cradles with every fiber of their being. And it was tough. And then I played against a bunch of, like, fast combo decks that were trying to, like, cheat Grizzlebrands and stuff into play. And I felt the slowness of my list as compared to Nettle Sentinel Elves uh, being a little bit of a problem. Like when you add those two drop Fiend Artisans into your list versus something that just lets you glimpse chain and go off, like you're going to feel that. But let me say this with the caveat that like Reclaimer Elves, just like kind of no matter what the build is going to look like, is not going to be great versus those decks in the first place. That's, yeah, I mean, that's part of the Elves whole like the elves weak wedge of the format is those sort of combo decks but that's kind of why newton went off the rails so much from the traditional build like elvish reclaimer turn one lets you hold up bajuka bog the rest of the game and that's really helpful against those sort of decks uh the endurances help against doomsday which was everywhere when newton was really going into the lab on this and having four endurance across the 75 really helps in those spots, which also helps against Reanimator. The amount of discard in the deck is really potent against Show and Tell. Like Show and Tell and Reanimator, when you were on just Glimpse Elves, was like, okay, yep, we're good here. You you got Dark Ritual in your deck, I guess the match is over. And main deck collector oof, main deck endurance, there there's just a lot of pieces that are dedicated to trying to close that gap. But you're right that those are always and always have been the problem, the natural predators of elves have been those nice green creature, you're dead sort of moments. Now, I I do think this build has some strengths. I very much came away from recording that video with like a negative taste in my mouth regarding the deck. I think the deck like ha- shows a lot of promise and I think Newton is doing some great stuff here. I think it's really cool to have something in your deck that lives through Lightning Bolt, right? Like these endurances, these fiend artisans a little bit later, like having those sorts of big butt things that don't get caught in red sweepers. What's the one mana red spell? Is that end the festivities? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So like end the festivities, for example, is something that can often like come down early and just like obliterate your board. But when you have like three, four elvish reclaimers, three, four endurances, these larger fiend artisan, like you line up very well and partially invalidate opposing removal. You're very much not dead to a plague engineer both because you have different creature types and because you have something with a big butt and 
as a green creature deck, you can just have something that can be roughly Merktide Regent sized when you get to a long grindy game. So when your opponent is sitting there casting their EIs, digging through their decks with cantrips and bobbles, you can just be like, 6-6 six, six Fiend Artisan that also has utility, go. And that's that's scary. And one thing I want to point out is the just magic as Garfield intended, quite literally, uh, give and take of death and taxes used to be like the, oh, you played a Llanowar Elf? Well, let's get lunch. Like, I'm out of here. A <laughs> sort, of, sort of match where like elves had that same experience against reanimator like oh you played in tomb we're done and death in texas was he played land or elves we're done and now like newton's moved up the curve into these solid interactive beasts that fight these combo decks a lot better but now death in texas is much closer than it's ever been like if you're slowing down that's where they thrive so you're you're losing a little bit on those those laugher matchups to stop other opponents from laughing quite so hard at you. Yeah. And for the people who are playing like broken combo decks, like say TES or something like that, this deck will be better at tutoring out things like collector oof. Cause in addition to the green suns, you also have these fiend artisans. So if you can punch an early hole with discard, like a thought season buy yourself some time, like you have this other card that just represents a tutor for your critical hate card. Yeah. Admittedly, if your hate card is Shriekmaw for the matchup, like you need a cradle or or like it's not happening. I will say one thing about tutoring up collector roof. The real fear behind that is that the elves list that I'm used to facing is so good at going turn one elf, turn two, green sun zenith for collector roof, turn three, put lethal on board or get close to lethal on board. Where I don't know if I'm nearly afraid, as afraid of turn two Fiend Artisan, turn three Collector Roof, turn four start to build up my game plan. Because that's going to give me more time to just find the answer and win. Yeah, there's definitely some really interesting give and take in this this deck building space that and I, I follow what Newton does closely. Very interested in every change he makes and every one he makes, some of them have seen more wild than others, but eventually it's just like, yeah, this is inarguably good but it is still magic the gathering and no deck should just beat every deck that's unhealthy so losing a little bit slowing down your actual kill in favor of more reliable hate uh is it it's cool i i i I like what's going on here from a magic the gathering deck builder and player perspective yeah and assuming you get to do your thing somewhat unchecked while you're not the fastest kill in the West by any stretch of the imagination, you're doing something that's powerful and flexible, maybe uncounterable a good portion of the games. You still have like the Wirewood Symbiote, Elvish Visionary chains to grind value. Um, I've seen a couple of sick screenshots involving like untapping a Fiend Artisan to tutor out multiple things and really like grow it to a huge size. I had a bad league with this deck that I still like 3 2 with or something like that. Like, I didn't like this deck in the way that I'm playing it, but I'm also, like, eating my popcorn and waiting for the next evolution of this deck list because, I like, I think what's going on here is really cool, can be very good, and is very exciting. A small antidote from uh, someone who was told that their idea wasn't very good for a long time, stick behind it. Like, if you think there's something there, really push, because when I started testing with Mox Opal, literally the storm community was just laughing at me they're like that card's unplayable like hope a gear that's just worse than xanid swarm defense grid like people laughed at me and then slowly it all came together and wish claw was the missing piece so you might not have the piece you need yet or maybe it already exists and that it was fiend artisan the whole time so don't be afraid to push the norms we have a little bit of time left and i kind of want to use it to talk real quick about run Velt horde master Oh, let's let's do it. I, this is maybe one of the like legacy spoilers that I've been like most excited about in the last couple of years. Right. We're no longer talking about goblins. We're talking about Richard Garfield's other tribe. We're not talking about elves. We're talking about goblins. Yes, <laughs> we're now talking about goblins. And uh, my warning that I was tired when we started this is kicking in. But Rundvelt Horde Master, one and a red creature goblin warrior. Other goblins you control get plus one plus one. So this thing's a two mana board already. What else does it do? How good could it get? Whenever Runvelt Horde Master or another goblin you control dies, exile the top card of your library. 
If it's a goblin creature card, you may cast that card until the end of your next turn. Holy guacamole. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Has anyone read in their life uh, Skirk Prospector or Mog War Marshal or just like Lightning Bolt? Okay, draw a card. This is... This is so Sling bonkers. Gang Lieutenant. Yeah, Sling Gang Lieutenant just shredding through your whole deck at, while doming your opponent. Andy, you don't even have to do any of this. Like, I think if this card wasn't a lord, it would still be exciting. But it's also just a lord. <laughs> just have one in play, crack for 10, and then make your opponent cast a removal spell, at which point you draw a card. Or you could just lean all the way in on some crazy combo version that assembles, like, uh, Snoop plus Kiki Jiki very quickly. I uh, I don't know all the applications. Uh, Eli at Goblin Lackey One on Twitter it has tweeted out a bunch of them already. He's stoked AF, and I'm excited for him because this is a this might change goblins more than Muxus did. So I think my favorite thing about this card is the fact that it is not a legendary creature. It is not. So like, not only can you just stack this up as like cheap, easy to cast lords. But you can also get this trigger ability multiple times. So like your Skirk Prospector plus any other goblin or like very particularly if it's one with like Persist or something like that that can come back uh, like a Mog War Marshal or something like that that produces multiple bodies. Like you can get a disgusting amount of value and like probably reach like actual storm levels of storm count uh, very easily. You now have my attention. Yeah. yeah, Bryant was asleep until the word storm count was said, and he just emerged from the darkness of his room where he was laying on the couch. He's back in the pod. So I, like, this card is so flexible, and I think that's what's going to make it strong. Like, this is a lord helping you to win in early combat. Um, a lot of times, Goblin run, runs into this problem where you play turn one lackey, and you're, then your opponent, like, plays an X2, and you're just like, shit. Like, that one, two creature, you know, that Deathrite Shaman-sized creature has just jumped in the way. And now you can just curve into this on turn two, making it more likely that your Lackey can connect and dump in your Muxus or your Sling Gang Lieutenant, you know, whatever it is that you want to get. So, like, in addition to all of the, like, broken combo aspects of this card, it also just makes your Goblin Lackey better in one card. And that's also better in multiples. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Uh, we didn't really build out a section for everything that can be done. It, we just saw it for the first time, like, this morning or late last night. But, yeah, this one needed to be mentioned. I am looking forward to playing a Goblin's Brew with this card as soon as I can. So, I think Goblin's is currently in this territory where the Goblin specialists put up a lot of really good results with Goblin's. But very few people are like, you know, I want to pick up goblins. I think that's one of the best decks in the format right now. And I think that's about to change. And I think we are going to see a lot more exploration of this archetype. Muxus saw an influx of new goblin players. And I think we are about to get that next wave of new people coming in. You know, we, we may see like goblins moving up from like a playable deck in the hand of specialists to like a legitimate tier one deck list. I am very hyped on this card. Like, this is, like, number one priority. Record with this as soon as I can. Yeah, I think this is the, the front runner of the, the Legacy spoilers so far from, from the new Dominaria set. And I'm excited that it's not Oko or Uro or Merktide Regent or Expressive Iteration. It's not some just card that is obviously bonkers on rate. This is a treat for people who have been waiting for a treat and working hard. <laughs> <laughs> 